You are listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 1, Episode 3. Hi, Mike McGill here. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. Our feature this month is a discussion with Arnold and Porter Counsel Judah Prero on the interplay between the regulation of the chemical PFAS and federal procurement, which is part of the Biden administration's broader efforts on climate and sustainability initiatives. Before we get to that, we'll cover a number of other important developments from the past month or so. In the first segment, I'll cover several recent procurement rules, a final federal acquisition regulation FAR rule on the use of small business procedures for overseas procurements, a final DOD FAR supplement DFARS rule on commerciality determinations, and a final DFARS rule on the validation of intellectual property rights and data related to commercial products. And we'll revisit the GSA acquisition letter concerning economic price adjustments to combat inflation. In the second segment, PubK's Bill Over will flag several notable federal contracting headlines from the past month, including some new policy guidance from the administration on Biamerica considerations in implementing the infrastructure bill, key proposed legislation that targets federal contractors, and the Interagency Suspension and Debarment Committee annual report, among several other developments. And the final segment, which is the bulk of the episode, is my discussion with Judah, in which we get down in the weeds on PFAS regulation and the interplay with federal procurement. Judah focuses on the regulation of the chemical industry, and he has some interesting insights on this emerging issue. I found the conversation enlightening, and I think the PFAS situation is important both because the approach to PFAS is going to have a surprisingly broad impact on procurement, but also as a case study on how this administration intends to address policies promoting sustainability through federal procurement. We will start by highlighting several notable regulatory developments from the past month or so. The first item is a final FAR rule issued on April 26 to implement SBA's policy applying the Small Business Act and SBA's rules to overseas procurements. The FAR rule, which is effective as of May 26, permits, but does not require, federal agencies to choose to apply the small business contracting procedures in FAR Part 19, including set-aside procedures, to contracts performed outside the U.S. and its outlying areas. Our listeners are probably familiar with the concept of a set-aside, but if not, it simply means a procurement is restricted to companies that qualify as small businesses. Now, back in 2013, SBA updated its own rules to clarify, as it put it, that the Small Business Act applies to contracts performed outside the U.S. SBA wanted to expand opportunities for small business concerns under contracts that involve delivery of goods or performance of services overseas. Although SBA asks agencies to include overseas contracts in their small business contracting goals, SBA's scorecard for recent fiscal years indicates that less than 5% of overseas contracts were awarded to small businesses as compared to roughly 25% of all prime contracts. Although there's no data to show how many contracts could have been set aside but weren't, the FAR Council is concerned that contracting officials may think set-asides are forbidden for overseas procurements. That's not been the case since at least 2013, when SBA revised or clarified its rules. Importantly, under this final FAR rule, agencies are not required to apply the small business procedures in Part 19 to overseas procurements or even to apply them to the maximum extent possible or something along those lines. The FAR Council decided that mandating standard small business procedures across the board to all overseas procurements would not be feasible for a variety of reasons. In some cases, it may not be possible to set aside requirements due to local laws, due to treaties and international agreements, or due to diplomatic and other consideration. The decision is entirely discretionary, and so much so, there's not even set factors that an agency is expected to consider. The Council concluded it wasn't practicable to list in the FAR 
open quote, everything that may affect the decision to set aside an overseas acquisition, end quote. So the factors and decision-making process is truly left to agencies at this point. What will drive the decisions? An agency can consider feasibility due to those factors like local laws and customs and so forth, as well as the standard considerations like anticipated cost, technical capabilities, and the competitive landscape. Even where Part 19 is applied, an agency will not set aside its requirements or it shouldn't set aside its requirements unless there are small businesses that have the capabilities, capacity, and inclination, as the FAR drafters put it, to compete for overseas work. If there are no qualified small businesses able to perform the work overseas, then the work should not be set aside. One issue to watch is the potential that this will place strain on the definition of small business under SBA's rules and applied through the FAR. While small business must be a U.S. company, it need not be a U.S.-owned company or even a U.S.-based company. It need not have its principal place of business in the U.S. A foreign-owned company can qualify as a small business if it, one, is organized for profit, two, has a place of business in the U.S., and three, operates primarily within the U.S. or makes a significant contribution to the U.S. economy through the payment of taxes or the use of American products, materials, or labor. For now, the upshot to this final rule is that there will be small business set-asides for some overseas procurements. That inevitably will be good news for certain small businesses and not so good news for certain large businesses, at least in some scenarios. Due to the discretion built into the rule, it remains to be seen how frequently the small business procedures will be used. That's something that SBA, Department of Defense, and other customer agencies, and the Government Accountability Office presumably will monitor, and that we'll likely report on in the future. You can expect U.S.-based large businesses to be following this closely, ready to shine a spotlight for lawmakers if the rule leads to greater awards to foreign-owned companies with limited ties to the U.S., while precluding large U.S. businesses from participating. It's also interesting that the FAR Council noted in commentary that making the small business rules mandatory overseas could undermine the administration's policies promoting domestic production. While they don't flesh out that point, it's an interesting acknowledgement of the potential tension there. A final point. The Council confirmed that it's not changing the rule on small business subcontracting plans, which are still not required where the prime contract will be performed entirely overseas. The next item is a final Department of Defense DFARS rule issued on April 28th and effective immediately that should facilitate commerciality determinations for DOD procurements. If you're listening, you probably appreciate the importance of a commerciality determination. If a product or service is deemed a commercial product or a commercial service, it generally can be procured through streamlined procedures and the contractor is subject to a more limited scope of government unique compliance requirements. The final rule revises DFARS 212.102 to provide that where a prior contract was awarded using FAR Part 12 commercial procedures, the products or services acquired through that contract are considered to be subject to a commercial item determination, or CID. That is the case unless the head of contracting activity issues a determination that the use of FAR Part 12 commercial procedures was improper, or the commercial item determination is no longer appropriate or applicable. If neither of those exceptions apply, DOD contracting officials then rely on the implicit prior determination to justify the use of FAR Part 12 procedures for a future procurement for the same product or service. In short, this makes it easier for agencies to use streamlined commercial procedures. This should in turn result in greater use of those procedures and provide some relief to contracting officers by limiting the number of new determinations required. This rule, which implements Section 848 of the Fiscal Year 2018 National Defense Authorization Act, applies to all DOD contracts. 
DOD noted, though, that commercial item determinations are only required for acquisitions over the simplified acquisition threshold. It's worth noting that there are scenarios in which a DOD agency will apply commercial item procedures due to a special statute, rather than a determination that what the government is buying qualifies as commercial. The rule provides, and this makes sense, that where that was the case, the use of commercial item procedures does not necessarily equate to a commercial item determination, absent an express determination in that regard. The next item is another final DFARS rule that also relates primarily to commercial companies, also is fairly favorable to industry, and also implements a mandate from a National Defense Authorization Bill, in this case, Section 865 of the 2019 bill. The final rule dictates that DOD must presume that a commercial product was developed exclusively at private expense when assessing a contractor's or subcontractor's data rights assertions. While a DOD agency can challenge a company's assertions, the agency cannot require the firm to submit a justification responding to a challenge. In essence, there are no default judgments, if you will, against the contractor. And the agency must rebut the presumption of private funding with sufficient information. DOD even recognizes in commentary that in many cases, DOD may not possess this information because, by its nature, it tends to be in the possession of the company. This rule is likely to be very helpful to commercial companies that do business with DOD. I anticipate that we'll discuss this further and place it into context when we do a deeper dive on Department of Defense intellectual property issues in a future episode. In the meantime, companies should keep this DFARS rule in mind if they're faced with challenges to data rights assertions submitted to DOD. And the last item in this segment is one that we mentioned briefly last episode. GSA in March issued an acquisition letter, MB2202, announcing that GSA was temporarily relaxing various limitations on the ability of federal supply schedule contractors to obtain economic price adjustments to address the impacts of inflation on the cost of their businesses. As everyone knows well at this stage, the U.S. economy is experiencing broad inflationary pressures driven by a variety of factors, including the war in Ukraine, supply chain disruption due to the pandemic and the fallout from it, and the support of fiscal and monetary policies in the U.S. and globally during the worst of the pandemic. Commercial companies selling through the FSS are obviously not immune from those pressures, and GSA is trying to provide relief to avoid companies throwing in the towel and removing offerings from the FSS program. Mechanically, the way this works is that GSA is making it easier for contractors to obtain upwards price adjustments by stating the agency will not enforce certain provisions in its standard EPA or economic price adjustment clauses, including their FAR supplement GSAR Clause 552-216-70 through at least the end of September of this year. A contractor must initiate the process by requesting an adjustment. This acquisition letter then empowers contracting officers to grant a greater number of those requests by placing a moratorium on enforcement of certain of the normal contractual limitations. GSA is effectively waiving its rights temporarily. GSA will lower the approval threshold. Now it needs to be just one level above the contracting officer, relax time limitations, relax limits on the number of requests allowed, and allow the reintroduction of products and services that were previously removed, even if they're reintroduced at higher prices, assuming those higher prices are now reasonable. That flexibility is certainly something that federal supply schedule contractors should explore if they haven't already, to the extent that a company is getting squeezed by inflation, driving up costs for labor, supplies, components, commodities, and so forth. As a final point, I would note this policy is discretionary for those federal supply schedule contracts that are administered by the Department of Veterans Affairs. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Bill now for our headline segment. 
Thanks, Mike. We have a lot of new developments this month, including OMB guidance on Buy America requirements, cybersecurity news from the White House and Department of Defense, some more new regulations, and some activity from Capitol Hill. Earlier this month, the White House issued guidance on ensuring that projects funded by the $1 trillion infrastructure package use materials made in the United States. Specifically, funds cannot be obligated for infrastructure projects unless all the iron, steel, manufactured products, and construction materials used in the project are produced in the United States. The guidance applies to all infrastructure spending, whether or not projects are funded through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The guidance applies when there are sufficient domestic producers and when the materials can be purchased at a reasonable price. Waivers will be available when those conditions cannot be met, but the administration's goal is to issue fewer waivers over time. As always, we're following a number of developments in the cybersecurity arena. The White House issued two new directives aimed at incorporating quantum computing technology into U.S. cybersecurity infrastructure and policy. The first establishes oversight and advisory bodies to share knowledge, guide policy, and support the development of emerging technologies. The second directive focuses on national security issues and provides guidance to agencies on ensuring their systems are quantum resistant. OMB also is preparing new guidance on software supply chain and cybersecurity. During a recent speaking engagement, Stephen Hernandez, the Education Department CISO and chair of the Federal CISO Council, suggested that some new mandates are on the way. While this isn't an official announcement, Hernandez said that policymakers want to codify NIST and CISA guidance on understanding the origin of software installed on government networks and holding vendors accountable for maintaining the security of that code. Hernandez also suggested the White House could issue additional executive orders on quantum computing and artificial intelligence. The Department of Defense is likely to release another interim rule implementing its Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program. Stacy Busjanik, the Director for CMMC Policy for the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, says the rule could come out as early as this month. The rule is expected to set out requirements for contractors to keep up with key cybersecurity measures to protect sensitive, unclassified data. Defense officials also want to review the security plans of small business contractors to see how well they comply with the department's cyber requirements. Nick Del Rosso of DCMA's Defense Industrial-Based Cybersecurity Assessment Center said his agency will expand its review process from large and medium-sized businesses to encompass small contractors. Del Rosso noted that small companies face unique challenges implementing various acquisition rules on protecting defense information and reporting cyber incidents. The reviews will determine how well their self-assessment scores line up with reality. Given the challenges facing defense contractors as they work to meet DOD's increasingly strong cyber requirements, the department is considering some steps to help. DOD is considering developing cloud services that contractors could adopt to qualify for cybersecurity maturity model certification. DOD Deputy CIO David McCown said that he is considering establishing the department-owned cloud services that meet some of the controls specified by NIST Special Publication 800-171, which vendors could access to manage DOD information. McCowan says this would be preferable to going out to assess each and every network of the department's industry partners. DOD also wants to expand its bug bounty program to encompass defense vendors. The department recently concluded a year-long pilot in which defense contractors accepted vulnerability disclosures about their public-facing systems. The pilot included 41 small and medium-sized defense contractors who received more than 1,000 vulnerability reports from researchers. 
Given that the defense sector is a major infiltration point for state-sponsored hackers, DOD would like more contractors to take advantage of its bug bounty program. The Office of Federal Procurement Policy has issued new guidance on contractor compliance evaluations and has rescinded several previous directives. The new directive updates the scheduling process for compliance evaluations in part to become more neutral and reach a broader pool of contractors. The directive also addresses the submission of affirmative action programs and their supporting data. It also expressly states that when contractors use OFCCP's contractor portal to certify their compliance with their AAP obligations, they are certifying that they have developed and maintained complete AAPs in compliance with OFCCP's requirements. The new directive explicitly rescinds several Trump administration-era documents intended to enhance the principles of certainty, efficiency, recognition, and transparency. In its annual report to Congress for fiscal year 2020, the Interagency Suspension and Debarment Committee found that suspension and debarment activity increased slightly from fiscal year 2019, but was still lower than recent years. Agencies reported 1,256 debarments, up from 1,199 in 2019. However, this was the second lowest number since 2010. There were also fewer proposed debarments, with 1,317 in 2020, compared to 1,437 in 2019. Agencies suspended 415 entities, down from 722 in 2019, and the lowest number since the ISDC began reporting. About half of agencies contributing to the report noted an increase in their activity, while others declined. Across all agencies, the use of alternatives to suspension and debarment exceeded the average over the last 12 years. ISDC attributed much of the decrease to the COVID-19 pandemic, as mail service was delayed, travel was restricted, and court proceedings were postponed. The committee also noted a significant increase in the total number of voluntary exclusions, which more than doubled, and an increase in declinations and administrative agreements. And as Mike noted earlier, we plan to take a deeper dive into those numbers in next month's episode. On Capitol Hill, the House Committee on Oversight and Reform approved H.R. 7185, the Federal Contracting for Peace and Security Act. The bill would prohibit agencies from contracting with any companies that are still doing business with Russia. If enacted, the policy would be triggered 60 days after enactment and would be in effect until the government determines that Russia has taken concrete steps to end the war in Ukraine and resolve any territorial disputes. Covered contractors would have 15 days to initiate contract termination, but some limited extensions would be available. The ban would apply to prime contracts and any major subcontracts, and it would apply to any parent, subsidiary, or beneficial owner of a prime contractor or major subcontractor beyond the contracting entity itself. While the bill's future is not certain, the narrow window between enactment and enforcement would give contractors only a limited time to comply. In the Senate, a bipartisan group of lawmakers introduced legislation to combat conflicts of interest in federal contracting. The Preventing Organizational Conflicts of Interest and Federal Acquisition Act would direct the FAR Council to identify services and contracting methods that pose a greater risk of conflicts of interest. It would also update the FAR with new disclosure requirements for contractors and contract and solicitation language intended to limit future conflicts. We'll be following the progress on those bills and the implications for contractors in future episodes as developments occur. The Department of Justice went over two in its first two wage-fixing and no-poach trials. In 2016, the department announced it would criminally prosecute companies that enter into illegal wage-fixing and no-poach agreements. DOJ has brought a number of prosecutions since late 2020, but earlier this month, the first two cases that went to trial ended in acquittal. 
In the first case, DOJ charged two employees of a healthcare staffing company with criminal wage fixing, alleging that they conspired with another staffing company to share pay information for physical therapy professionals and to decrease their rates. After a six-day trial, a jury found the defendants not guilty on the conspiracy charges, although one defendant was found guilty of obstructing the government's investigation. In the second case, DOJ charged Devita Inc. with conspiring with other healthcare companies not to solicit each other's employees. While the defendants conceded that some agreements were made, the jury voted to acquit, finding that DOJ had not shown that the agreements created an environment where meaningful job and salary competition was not available. For more background on DOJ's scrutiny of these agreements, you can check out the first episode of Bonafide Needs from March. During that episode, Mike has an in-depth discussion with Andre Gervarola, head of Arnold and Porter's cartel investigations practice and former director of litigation for the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. They take a deep dive into the history of DOJ's enforcement in this area and the implications for government contractors. And finally, in regulatory news, the Department of Interior has revised its regulations governing contract set-asides for Indian-owned businesses. The rule expands the set-aside authority to other agencies within Interior and the Department of Health and Human Services. Previously, that authority was restricted to the Bureau of Indian Affairs and Indian Health Service. In addition, Indian-owned entities participating in the Department of Defense's mentor-protege program will still be eligible for set-asides. For the purposes of the Buy Indian Act, no affiliation will be found between a mentor and a protege as a result of any developmental assistance provided by the mentor firm. The rule also removes limitations on the use of set-asides for construction contracts. Previously, Interior could use set-asides only for certain covered contracts, but now the department can set aside any construction contract in its jurisdiction for Indian-owned businesses. The Small Business Administration issued a final rule to increase the receipts-based size standards for 229 industries. The changes will allow some firms to retain their size status for longer and may allow others who lost their eligibility to qualify as a small business again. SBA did not increase any receipts-based size standards, noting the ongoing impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. SBA also issued a proposed rule that would increase 150 employee-based size standards. SBA also proposed to retain the current 500 employee size standard for the procurement of supplies under the non-manufacturer rule. The public has until June 27th to comment on the proposed changes. And finally, contractors have until October 2023 to prepare for a major change in how agencies treat leases. On October 1st, 2023, the new lease accounting standard at Statement of Federal Financial Accounting Standards 54 will go into effect. The Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board's new approach will include most leases on the balance sheet for lessees and lessors. And that's it for this month. Back to you, Mike. It's Mike again. Thanks to Bill for those timely PubK headlines. We'll be tracking developments in those areas and diving deeper into some of them over the coming months. One of those areas that we'll likely dive deeper into is CMMC as soon as we have some concrete developments out of the Department of Defense. We're going to spend the balance of this episode focusing on the intersection of federal environmental policy and federal procurement. As expected, the Biden administration has been active in this area. It's probably fair to say that we've not seen any seismic shifts impacting federal procurement just yet, but they may be coming. In October, the FAR Council issued a notice seeking comment on the implementation of Executive Order 14030, Climate-Related Financial Risk, 
which asked the council to consider, one, amending the FAR to ensure major procurements minimize the risk of climate change, and two, requiring that federal contractors disclose greenhouse gas emissions and climate-related financial risks. Although the president didn't mandate regulations, in April, the FAR Council indicated that it was proceeding with a couple rulemakings to implement the executive order, including one that's expected to mandate disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions and climate-related financial risks for major defense contractors. The Securities and Exchange Commission, as you probably have already heard, has already moved in this area, proposing a broad climate-related disclosure rule that applies to certain companies that it regulates. We'll plan to cover the FAR rules in depth once we see proposed regulatory text. While we wait for the headline FAR rulemakings, it's worth pausing to consider some of the ways the administration's already affecting federal procurement through its environmental initiatives. There are many other examples of this intersection between climate sustainability policies and federal procurement. We're going to do a deep dive on one of those in this episode. And that brings us to our guest. I'm excited to have the opportunity to speak with my colleague, Judah Pereiro, on the regulation of PFAS, a chemical substance Judah will explain in greater detail in just a moment. PFAS is used by a variety of industries that contract regularly with the government, including aerospace and defense, automotive, construction, electronics, oil and gas, and transportation. The use of PFAS has been a concern going back some 15 years, but this administration is accelerating the crackdown on it. We're fortunate to have Judah available to help explain both the broader situation on PFAS and the impact on federal procurement. A quick introduction to Judah. He's a counsel in Arnold and Porter's Washington, D.C. office. He counsels clients on environmental health and safety issues in addition to advising on chemical management laws and regulations, including laws under the purview of the Environmental Protection Agency, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and the Department of Homeland Security. Judah's counseled the chemical industry on programs that relate to commercial and consumer use chemicals, pesticides, and antimicrobials. Before joining the firm, Judah was the assistant general counsel at the American Chemical Council, where he was the lead attorney representing the chemical industry in the drafting and negotiation of the Frank Lautenberg Chemical Safety for the 21st Century Act. That law was the first major overhaul of the Toxic Substances Control Act in almost four decades. It was the most significant legal development on chemical regulation in President Obama's administration, and it passed on a bipartisan basis, if you can believe that. Hi, Judah. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Glad to be here. So we're going to focus today on the growing restrictions on the use of the chemical PFAS and the impact on U.S. federal procurement. Why don't we start with the basics, and then we can cover the evolving regulatory regime aimed at PFAS and then close with some thoughts on what to expect in the future. Starting, I suppose, with the most basic of the basic, what is PFAS? So PFAS are per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, which probably doesn't give you much more information about what they are, um, rather than if you just said PFAS. Um, But what it what it is in essence is a it's a chemical we're identified by a bond with fluorine and carbon, and that particular bond is incredibly strong. It's resilient doesn't break down. And because of those properties, it's attractive in many different uses. Um, And because of that attractiveness and the fact that it has been applied in so many different situations, um, really is what's caused it to rise to attention because of the fact it really is used in so many different substances and products. um, And therefore, it's found its way into the environment as well. So why do 
products contain PFAS? What products do contain PFAS? And what are the benefits to it? Why do we find products that contain PFAS? So broadly speaking, you know, the, the properties that you'll find when PR, where when people or entities want to add PFAS is you know, it adds durability. It can add a layer of protection from water in the elements. It can prevent chemical breakdown, rusting, and all of these properties. So then you know you look at the specific applications. Like for example, in apparel, having garments that are water resistant, stain resistant, you know, are all attractive. In electronics, you're dealing with, you know, small components that you want to make sure they don't corrode. Uh, they're exposed to all sorts of other chemicals when they're composed. So you don't want any type of reactions and you also want them to last for a long time. Uh, it's used you know, in semiconductors for the same reason, also because it provides a layer of heat resistance, which you're going to have in any electrical component. And so you'll also find them, for example, in, you know, in aerospace and in other cars, automobiles, because you have gaskets or you have seals um, that again, you want to be resistant. You don't want them breaking down water resistance, uh, corrosion resistance. And so all of those properties are, you know, are, are beneficial to the product. They make it last longer and that's why they're added. And so you'll find it you know, in the applications I mentioned, the plus in, in healthcare settings, it's used in, in medical equipment um, for this very same reasons I, I just went through, rugs, carpets, you name it. It's, it's in pretty much you know, every, everything for all the reasons we discussed. And, and how long has it been in use? It's easily been out there for, for, for 60 plus years. Um, you know, one of the main reasons why people started paying attention to PFAS um, really was because it was detected in water supplies. And upon investigation, we're looking at patterns as to which water supplies were affected. It was near military bases and it was traced back to aqueous firefighting foam, which was used by the military, uh, both one, to put out fires, um, but also in training exercises when they would drill on how to prevent the fire. And PFAS is in there also because of its properties with the, how it reacts to water and it, it doesn't wash away and the foam is able to suppress the fire. The PFAS in, a, in an aqueous firefighting foam um, is in a military spec. It's been that way. Um, and you know, despite the fact that you know, the government has been trying to push you know, the DOD away from using that, um, they haven't been successful. I mean, just, just this week, a report came out from DOD that you know, they were mandated by Congress to look at alternatives. Uh, they found six, but none of them really met all of the criteria that DOD had. Um, and so therefore, there really is no good substitute that was identified at this point for aqueous firefighting foam that has PFAS in it. And so we, we've talked about some of the benefits of PFAS, some of the properties that it has that led to its widespread use, and you've alluded to some of the downsides to PFAS, but if you could just walk us through, what are some of the downsides? What are the, some of the harms caused by PFAS? So you know, as, as science evolves and technology evolves, so do the world of PFAS, because you know, PFAS is just a really broad way of describing you know, any compound that has that carbon fluorine bond in it. And so there's thousands potentially of different PFAS substances. Um, and 
over time with with the degree of sophistication and science and just more data coming in you know, scientists have been able to determine that some of the older pfas substances like pfoa and pfas um, may have presented or, or were associated with certain health risks. Um, and so as, as time progressed, you know, companies are always looking to find the, the, the newest, greatest PFAS, um, one that is less likely to break down, one that's less likely to be absorbed by the body. Um, and so, you know, o- over time, you have newer technologies that pro- have a better safety profile than some of the older PFAS substances. Okay, so it's it's not the case that all PFAS ha- has these negative attributes, or is it inherent in PFAS generally? And so, the, you know, the fact that it's persistent and it doesn't break down, um, and that you know it's bioaccumulative, I mean, that that's just built into the nature of the substance. With regards, you know, does that cause harm? Um, you know, that that's a whole different subject, and. So with some of the older substances, they've been more rigorously studied. Some of the newer substances, not so much. But then again, the newer substances were designed so that you know the molecules are larger. They don't get absorbed by the body as easily. And so they were designed to try to address some of the concerns that were presented by the older substances. And some of the audience may be familiar with the restrictions in past national defense authorization bills concerning PFOS and PFOA. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned those two, and I understand that they're essentially a subset or they are a subset of PFAS. Could you just briefly explain the relationship between PFOS and PFOA on the one hand and PFAS on the other? Sure. So you know, as you just said, they're, they're a subset. PFOA and PFOS were probably the two most used PFAS substances going back you know, over the past, uh, you know, a few decades. And they were found in, uh, in, in applications such as the nonstick coating in cookware, in, in stain and water-resistant coatings that were used in rugs, carpets, textiles, and apparel. And, you know, as we just said before, in aqueous firefighting foam. And, and so for a long time, you know, those were the most prevalent PFAS substances. Um, At this point in time in the United States, they're not used. They've been phased out. Can't say that's necessarily the same for other places in the world. Um, But in in the United States, that's definitely the state of play. And you mentioned, Judah, there's an evolution with PFAS and certain more modern PFAS, if you will, um, maybe don't have all of the same negative health attributes. In addition to through the modernization of PFAS, what alternatives are there to PFAS generally? And some of these, when we're talking about some of these uses, the current uses and historical uses of PFAS. So manufacturers can really take one of two main approaches. And and one is to decide that they're just not going to add PFAS um, and whatever benefit that had to the product, you know, it'll be lost or, you know, they they can market it as PFAS free. And such as, you know, if you had a garment that previously was water repellent because it had a PFAS added to it and now it's not. And so now it's not a water repellent garment, but it's PFAS free. So on on the one hand, you know, there's a marketing claim there. In the alternative, you know, as as I mentioned, there are newer substances that have been developed and and that that manufacturers use. 
that being the case, you know, to find a total uh, a total swap out for PFAS that doesn't involve a you know PFAS, I mean, has proven challenging because it it really it's just the nature of that chemical bond that imparts those characteristics that are so desirable in so many applications. In one of those, Judah, correct me if I'm wrong here, though, is in semiconductors. You mentioned that PFAS is prevalent in semiconductors to control heat. And my understanding is that currently there is really no alternative to PFAS's use in semiconductors. That's correct. It's in there. And to date, there's just no replacement for it. So there are some instances, Judah, and we talked about semiconductors where there's no alternatives currently to PFAS. There's just nothing available. And so the industry is using them. What are the companies in those industries? What are some of the things that they're trying to do to address this, these sort of evolving requirements and be prepared as they become more strict down the road? So I, I think that companies in general are taking a multifaceted approach. You know, on the one hand, they recognize that some of the PFAS substances that have been out there historically have posed problems. Uh, that being said, you know, they have those, those desirable properties and therefore you know, they'll be involved in the research and development of looking at PFAS substances that are, that are still PFAS technologies that are, have a better safety profile um, that don't cause concerns or the issues that have been raised in connection with some of the older technologies. Um, but at the same time, they're also going to look to see, it, you know, is there anything else out there? Uh, can you develop a new substance? Can you develop a combination of substances? Can you even you know, rejigger the technology in it itself um, so that you know, the reason why you needed the PFAS might be eliminated or, or, or other, otherwise addressed? And so, you know, they will focus, you know, their research and development on, on those two fronts. One, you know, is, is there a newer, better PFAS? Um, and then two, you know, is there a viable alternative that doesn't involve the use of PFAS? You know, and, and over time, I, I think, you know, we'll see developments in both areas. Uh, you know, we'll just see how long it takes to get there. So we're going to get into some of the federal initiatives and private sector standards related to PFAS. Before we do that, I wanted to cover one other sort of threshold point, and that's this concept of added PFAS. A lot of these initiatives are, are focused on situations where there's added PFAS. Can you explain that concept and distinguish from a situation in which PFAS is present but not restricted or prohibited in the same way? Sure. So in, in chemical regulatory world, uh, you know, there's, there's the distinction between substances that are intentionally added um, and those that end up in a product as a result of either impurities or byproducts or sometimes a reaction between, you know, for example, the substance that's put in a container with the material that the container is composed of, um, or for that matter, you know, just in the equipment in which a uh, substance is being manufactured, it'll come in contact with something else and you'll, you'll get an impurity or a byproduct. And so the focus on the PFAS restrictions has been for those intentionally added circumstances where, you know, an, a manufacturer is adding PFAS because of the specific benefits that it provides to that finished product. There, there's an understanding by regulators that just because PFAS is used, like for example, in heavy machinery and equipment, 
And it's very possible that a substance or a material that you're manufacturing, where you're not adding PFAS, you have no need for it, but because it's being manufactured with equipment that has PFAS in it, you might end up with some small amount of impurity or byproduct. And in those circumstances, you know, regulators aren't really focusing on that. Um, and that's, it's those very tiny amounts that really don't give cause for concern. And with that very helpful background, President Biden promised during his campaign to move away from PFAS. And we're seeing some action in that area over the past six months or so. I realize there are a number of moving pieces or aspects to the administration's actions in this area, and that they're part of broader initiatives generally. Can you help us understand the lay of the land, both in terms of the current requirements or stated plans, and then potential future developments, uh, foreseeable future developments in the near term as they relate to PFAS? Sure thing, Mike. So the, uh, the, a focus by the federal government on you know, environmentally preferable purchasing isn't new. And it actually, the, the effort first started back in 2011 to try to identify either, either eco-labels or standards by which it would make it easier for federal purchasers to understand you know, what products um, were indeed more friendly to the environment. And that effort you continued under the uh, under the watchful eye of EPA. And you know, in 2016 is when EPA first came out with a, a structure to try to analyze different types of standards and eco labels um, that appear on products. And since that time, you know, it was it was a test run starting in 2016. And yeah, EPA has had the benefit of a lot of stakeholders um, into does the process work? How, how useful is it? What type of information is required? They're, they're at the point where you know, they, they have made some tweaks. Um, but before I continue with that, you know, we'll overlay, as you just mentioned, when you know, President Biden came into office. Um, so he issued an executive order number 14057, which is known as the Executive Order on Catalyzing Clean Energy Industries and Jobs Through Federal Sustainability. And in Section 208 of that executive order, you know, there's a section that's entitled Sustainable Acquisition and Procurement. And it says straight out you know, that federal agencies, to the maximum extent practicable, are supposed to purchase sustainable products and services identified or recommended by the EPA. Um, so now there is, you know, a, a, an outright directive from the president via an executive order to all the federal agencies that they are supposed to, you know, just procure to the maximum extent practicable sustainable products. And EPA is supposed to help the agencies identify that. So it's, it's part of the explanation as to what the executive order is supposed to accomplish so the administration put out, you know, a memo that goes into greater detail about the different components of the executive order and how the goals are to be met. And in the, in the section explaining you know, this, the sustainable, you know, procurement, um, the, the administration said explicitly that agencies should prioritize substitutes for products that contain PFAS. And therefore, to the maximum extent practicable and consistent with statutory mandates, agencies should avoid the procurement of PFAS-containing items. And so, you know, here it is, outright 
no no gray to this dictate. It's out there clear black and white that the federal government is supposed to move away from PFAS containing substances through procurement. So, you know, the direction is always look at EPA, look at EPA and see what they have to say. So, you know, how does EPA provide that help? I mean, how do they provide that guidance? And so under EPA, they have what's known as the Environmentally Preferable Purchasing Program. And the point of this program is to, for one, it it gathers information from all the federal agencies. Um, If there's a need, for example, for developing industry standards with regards to the the environmental characteristics for a certain product. And and that's one area that they help. But the primary purpose of the environmentally preferable purchasing program is to actually make the recommendations to all the other federal agency purchasers about what specifications or standards or eco-labels an agency can rely on to determine whether or not a product is indeed environmentally preferable or not. Um, And then, you know, the last part of the program is obviously providing the guidance to the federal agencies and helping them, you know, understand, you know, what does a label mean, how to understand it, what should they be looking out for, um, and, you know, holding the hands of procurement officers so they can better understand what they should be looking out for and, and what's available. So in order for the program to work, you know, EPA has to make those recommendations. And there are, you know, to date, I think there's, you know, there's 460 plus different types of eco-labels or standards out there that, you know, EPA has over time filtered through um, and and assessed them and in order to make recommendations. Uh, But in order to ensure that, you know, the assessment process is standardized, transparent, objective. So the EPA developed the, what's now known as the framework for the assessment of environmentally perf- environmental performance standards and eco-labels for federal purchasing. And what the framework does is it, it actually sets forth a pretty transparent, predictable guidelines for what EPA is looking for, for an eco-label that it can approve. And it's almost a check the box exercise. It lists standards in different areas, different objectives that need to be met. You know, and any entity that wants to submit their eco-label for approval, you know, can read the criteria. It, it's pretty straightforward. Um, do they meet the baseline criteria and everything that EPA is looking for? And assuming they do, um, and they can demonstrate such to EPA, then they're going to be approved. It's really, it's, it's not a difficult process. Um, it's, but you know, it, it's it's been set out, and over time, most recently, you know, EPA did make some tweaks to this to the framework. Um, it, it has you know, different types of recommendations or or, or ways of characterizing uh, the elements that it's looking for with for in an eco label or a standard. And, you know, there's baseline criteria, which you know, if you don't have them, then forget it. You're not getting approved. And then there's what's known as leadership criteria, which means you've gone above and beyond what the, the minimum required. And you know, if if you satisfy those leadership criteria, that just means you're you know you're a more more desirable eco label or standard. And so, in the most recent tweaks to the framework, they've bumped up some of what used to be just le- leadership 
um, into baseline criteria. Um, for example, if an eco-label requires ingredients disclosure, um, which so that means that any purchaser of a product will know exactly what's in the product. They can't get their eco-label unless it's abundantly clear to everyone from looking at the product what's in there. That, that's one thing that's now been made that used to be leadership criteria, now it's baseline. Over time, EPA is going to be looking at more eco-labels, more standards that in different product categories, um, because you know the federal government procures like everything. Uh, and, and so to date, there aren't necessarily eco-labels that address everything, um, but EPA is encouraging the, the development of consent industry consensus standards to address environmental issues. They're, they're encouraging additional eco-labels. And again, as long as you meet these criteria, then the EPA can recommend you. And, uh, and if you want to know if an, e if an eco-label is on the recommended list, you just go to EPA's website and they have a list um, of all of the specification standards and eco-labels that they recommend. So not too hard to figure it out. And so the most recent development with the recommendations, uh, which was to address what it said in the executive order, is that EPA now has a web page that lets you know which of the eco-labels and standards specifically addresses PFAS and products. Uh, and so now, you know, a, 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 anyone in a federal agency who's you know, undertaking a procurement, you know, if they want to go ahead and meet the, the administration's uh, the goal of procuring with the uh, products that don't contain PFAS, they can go to the EPA's website, they can see which product categories have eco-labels that focus on PFAS, um, and they can just take it from there. So EPA is trying to make it as simple as possible for, you know, for, for those undertaking procurements to figure out what they need to do um, to meet the administration's goals. That's a very helpful summary. And I want to try and unpack, Judah, a few of those concepts. W one of those concepts that's, uh, I think, of importance to federal agencies and federal contractors is this idea of a mandate or close to a mandate through the directive of maximum extent practicable. So to procure these types of products to the maximum extent practicable. What is your sense right now um, from the administration and what you're seeing out of the administration in terms of the expectation that there will actually be a, um, that will ultimately be translated into a procurement mandate to buy recommended products or, or products that have the EPA's blessing, whatever form that ultimately takes. Along the lines of what we just discussed a little bit earlier, you know, for some products, they're just not going to be substitutes for available products that don't contain PFAS versus ones that do. And so, the, you know, the executive order somewhat acknowledges that by not making it a mandate, but it is, you know, to the maximum extent practicable. And in, in many circumstances and for many products, it just won't be practicable. And so, you know, the, the agencies will do what they need to do to get their products. And that being said, you know, there are definitely going to be products over time that, presumably will meet whatever specs the government puts out for a certain product um, and that don't have PFAS in it. 
those products will definitely want an eco-label uh, that signals that. And so then they will want that eco-label improved by EPA uh, so that it can be recommended for, you, for use to the federal agencies for procurements. And the other area that I think would be helpful to unpack a little bit is EPA's role and how its recommendations process works. And so for a procurement lawyer who doesn't live with EPA recommendations on a daily basis, I find them interesting and frankly, somewhat ambiguous after spending some time on the webpage. EPA calls various private sector standards and equal labels recommended and says that agencies should use them, right? But EPA also includes this disclaimer, and I'm going to read it because I find it, you know, I think you've got to capture the whole thing to get the concept. Inclusion in the recommendations is not an endorsement by EPA of the standards eco-labels or of any of the products conformant to these standards eco-labels, but rather a statement that the standard eco-label meets either EPA's framework or is recommended for use by another federal agency. And so Judith, can you help me parse that disclaimer? How are procuring agencies who are, they've got all this guidance and these mandates thrown at them, how are procuring agencies expected to process that, that information when making decisions? So EPA has this mission and that, as you just said, they have to make suggestions and recommendations to the federal agencies. Now, they, you know, EPA is, has developed some of its own standards in different areas of environmental sustainability, you have safer choice with regards to chemicals, you might have energy stars. So, you know, th th there are EPA programs that they've developed on their own. And so that they're, they're familiar and they can make those recommendations. On the other hand, you know, they're not the only ones in that business. And there's plenty of accreditation bodies out there that go ahead and offer their services, usually for pay, to, to vendors who want, you know, this, this seal of approval um, so that it can be identified, you know, as an environmentally preferable product. And so, you know, EPA wants to leverage that marketplace. And so what they have done is they've developed this assessment framework. And it really is just a checklist of criteria that they've developed in coordination with many different stakeholders on how they're going to go about evaluating the, the, the different either eco standards or eco labels. And, you know, they're looking for criteria such as what type of information does a vendor have to supply to the eco label uh, the issuer um, in order to you know, be allowed to use the product. I mean, in, in, how many how many different products have to be offered? What type of characteristics? And is there an enforcement mechanism from the issuer of the label if they find out that you know a product isn't living up to what it's supposed to do? Uh, and so, but all none of these are going to be independently assessed by EPA. They're just looking to see does the eco label itself do these things, or does the standard body go through these different exercises? And assuming that you know they can, anyone who applies for the recommendation can demonstrate to EPA, we can check all of the boxes that you ask us to, um, and you know, and we can prove it. Um, in those circumstances where EPA asks for it, then EPA is going to say, okay, we can recommend you. That being said, EPA is not going to do its own evaluation of 
you know, each in, in, in independent uh, evaluation or investigation, you know, in, into the standards and give it its own blessing. They're just going to rely on their evaluative framework. And again, it's supposed to be as objective as possible. We have EPA set forth the standards, you meet them, you're in. You don't meet the standards, you're out. So that's why you know they can recommend labels or standards, but they're not endorsing them because you know they're not they're not going that far. But they recognize they have to be able to make suggestions to all the federal agencies that are out there with regards to what exactly they can buy that meets the goals of you know environmentally preferred procurement. And you know the only way to do that is really to re re leverage what's in the private marketplace. And so that's what this program is all about. Might it be fair, Judah, to say that EPA is not endorsing a specific standard or eco-label that meets their framework versus others? Because they are, in a sense, aren't they, endorsing those that are within the recommendations versus those that aren't, right? I, I think what the way EPA would characterize it is that we've developed these standards and we didn't do it in a vacuum. We developed with other people's inputs. And you know, if, if you meet these standards, you meet these criteria, then you're in our program. That's it. Then we can recommend products with your label or that meet your standard to other people. So I, I think EPA would just you know look at it simply like that. You know, we're we're not you know we're we're not being we're exercising our own independent judgment. We've just developed these criteria, objective that if if an applicant meets them, then they're in the program. And this is a point that you mentioned, but I want to make sure it wasn't missed to the audience. And that is, while there's other areas of sustainability where the government establishes its own standards, and we're talking about sustainability performance standards, rather than the standards for the standards or the framework that we're talking about, or the actual standards that apply to a particular product that it has to meet. So the government does have a role in setting some of those standards. And I can tell you, in other contexts that the audience might be familiar with, including like information security, the government does establish standards and then asks companies to comply with those. But I think it's important not, not to, to lose track here that the government currently does not actually establish the standards for PFAS. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's not foreseeable here in the next period of time that they're going to develop their own standards, but instead the, the expectation is they'll continue to rely on private sector standards. That's correct. I, I think that EPA will most definitely continue to rely on these private sector standards. Yeah, if there's a push for e, for EPA to develop a federal standard for PFAS and products, maybe it could happen. But doing such would be complicated. And and frankly, EPA has so much on its hands right now, just from the regulatory standpoint, on addressing PFAS use just in manufacturing overall as a regulated chemical, and then its presence in air, wastewater, you know, again, from the regulatory context, that I, I think they'll be more than happy just to rely on what the private sector is doing at this point with the eco-labels and PFAS, and rather than have to undertake you know, an exercise on their own to develop a standard. Right. But I'm sure not everybody's going to be happy with that. Right. So does the reliance, so. yeah, does the reliance on private sector standards raise concerns perhaps about undue reliance or influence from industry, either in making the standards too strict or too lenient or favorable to certain companies or industries? 
this is not obviously the standards themselves are not subject to notice and comment rulemaking process. I would posit that EPA would respond to that by saying that when they developed their assessment framework, you know, it was an open process. They invited stakeholder input from, you know, whether it be the regulated community, whether it be standard and eco-label developers and, and accreditation bodies, you know, whether it be from NGOs who have an interest in, in, in this process. And all of that feedback was evaluated, parsed through by EPA, and it came out as in their evaluative framework. And so EPA would just say, listen, we, we heard what everyone had to say. Um, we, we addressed it. And then frankly, you know, some of their some of the new standards um, are definitely more progressive um, than what we had seen originally, what came out in 2016. Like just for example, you know, the the ingredient disclosure requirement is definitely one that uh, newer, you don't even see such from a regulatory context in many jurisdictions. I mean, there, there's no federal mandate for, on ingredient disclosure for many, many products. And even on the state level, there's a few jurisdictions for certain types of products that would require ingredient disclosure. And so by virtue of the fact that you know, here the federal government is, is, is saying that, you know, if you want to be considered a product that fits our definition of environmentally preferable, you have to do this. Um, you're definitely moving the ball beyond what's required by regulation today. And so to shift gears just a little bit, in, in some ways, this recognition of the harm of PFAS and, and, and the move away from PFAS that we're seeing recently reminds me of the asbestos awakening, if you will, and then the phasing out of asbestos and asbestos abatement. There are chemicals that are effective at things like containing heat and fire and containing moisture. As a layperson, it seems that we tend to run into these issues with chemicals and substances due to environmental and health impacts that are a result of the reasons we use them in the first place. So as an expert in this area, uh, as a legal expert in this area, let me frame it up this way. Is it reasonable to expect that there will be replacements for things like PFAS in our lifetime? And you know, what might that look like? I, I think that you know, science, we, we've seen science evolve in so many fantastic and incredible ways and enable us to develop new products that we wouldn't have, have dreamed of just a generation ago. And so, you know, it's not so far-fetched to imagine that science could develop something that could meet the needs that PFAS has met today to date. I and mean, it, it's possible. Again, you know, in, in the short term, what do we, you know, in the next five, 10 years, I don't know. It's as you know mentioned before, you know, DOD has been looking for the past two years, you know, for, for a, a literally a drop in replacement for PFAS and aqueous firefighting foam, and they don't have it. I would say there's definitely money to be made by developing that substitute. So there's an incentive out there for those in, in that business to look for something. That being said, you know, to date, PFAS has shown to be you know, reliable. And there's been a lot of focus within that industry on making them as, as safe as possible and generating the data to prove that. 
And so I, I think PFAS are just going to be around for a while, um, you know, for, for multiple reasons. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, to the extent that there are alternatives developed, they'll definitely be used. But the shift away from PFAS in certain products will not occur rapidly. So we, we've covered the current state of play in terms of the administration's approach to PFAS. If you have to look into the future, what, what do you expect? What should companies be looking for? What's the next ball to drop over the next, you know, just say six months to a year? Are there things that you're expecting? Yes. So when it comes to PFAS, this EPA has made it very clear. And in truth, it's not restricted to PFAS. It's, it's, in, it's been seen with other chemicals as well. It's that for a long time, EPA in its role as a regulator of chemicals has been focused primarily on just the manufacture of a chemical. Is, is, is a chemical safe? And they haven't really looked at, is it safe when incorporated in you know, a widget? Um, but this EPA has made it very clear that it's taking an entirely different approach to chemical regulation and that they are going to be looking at whether, let's you know, PFAS specifically, is safe when it is in a widget. And so to that end, you know, if you're a widget manufacturer um, or for that matter, a widget importer, because you know, under the applicable law, import is the same thing as manufacture. So if you're importing it to the United States, you manufacture it in the United States. So at a threshold level, EPA is gonna be requiring a manufacturer to know what exactly is in your product. And so if you are buying multiple components, you know, from multiple vendors and you never really had any spec with regards to does it contain PFAS or not, so you might have no idea if a component has PFAS in it or not. And EPA is now going to demand that you know, and you're going to have to know. And we're going to see by January of the next year, um, a regulation on the books you know, that if you, you know, at, at, at a base level, if you manufacture a PFAS, uh, you're going to have to let EPA know all sorts of information about, you know, how much, how much you use, what products it goes into, how you handle disposal, how many employees get exposed. And while the rule hasn't been finalized, but at least the proposal included you know, widget manufacturers and all that, and what, what, what's called, you know, in, in, in our regulatory world, articles. And, you know, if you are an article manufacturer or you're an article importer, you are going to be expected to know if there's PFAS in that article. And so, you know, in the short, in, in the immediate short run, you know, manufacturers should be doing a significant amount of due diligence to determine, you know, is there PFAS in my products or not? Just from the regulatory standpoint, you know, they're going to be presented with some compliance challenges. I mean, but looking at it a bit more holistically, you know, when you're looking at this type of procurement program that exists within EPA, if you're able to affirmatively demonstrate that you don't, so you have one up on some of your competitors um, who may not be able to make that demonstration. And so, you know, there, there's on the one hand, that regulatory component, but there's also, you know, the marketability component, whether it be for federal procurements or just for the public at large. So we've been focused on the federal regulation and specifically the impact on federal procurement, but we'd probably be remiss if we didn't mention 
the companies are also regulated at the state level, right? Maybe, maybe Judy, you could just sort of briefly summarize the current state of play at the state level. Sure. O- over the past few years, there have been a number of states that have focused on PFAS and certain products. And you know, in, in the first instance, it's been carpets, rugs, textiles. Um, and so there's been you know, regulation of, PFAS, of the presence of PFAS in those. Uh, we've seen lately a, 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 a push to also regulate PFAS in cosmetics and personal care products. Uh, and so you know, as time goes on, we're seeing more of those types of, of pieces of legislation pop up in state legislatures. Um, what, what we've seen only one example of so far in the United States um, is in the state of Maine. You know, th- they have a ban on PFAS in everything um, that'll be effective, not right away. There's, there's some time yet until that kicks in. Um, and the way to get out of that ban is you're going to have to submit a waiver application to the state, which will have to be processed. And if they decide to grant a waiver, uh, so then you're going to have to, the state will have to go through a rulemaking process. You know, and the expectation is, is that industry is getting these waiver requests ready, despite the fact that it's not effective yet. But you need some time, especially for applications where you know you can't reformulate you know, within the next two years. Um, and perhaps the state will realize that they bit off a lot more than they can chew with this type of restriction. Uh, it remains to be seen. But yeah, I think the industry perspective on that is they definitely bit off more than they could chew. They're not going to be able to handle it. And so I, I have not seen that trend being copied in other states yet. It's been more focused on very specific types of products. Again, carpets, rugs, textiles, um, personal care products, cosmetics. Uh, and, and, and the like. And that's really where the focus has been on this for state regulation of PFAS today. So you've sprinkled practical guidance and recommendations throughout, I think, but to close, just to revisit that topic again, knowing that PFAS containing products are likely to remain a focus of the administration and regulators at the federal level and also at the state levels, uh, but focusing on federal contractors in particular, what should companies that are thinking about that are selling to the federal government or thinking about selling to the federal government, what should they be doing at this point, or what should they be thinking about at this point? As we just you know discussed a few moments ago, I think knowing what's in your product is just so important. That's really it. It all starts from there um, because if you know exactly what's in your product and what's not, and you can state with certainty that there is no PFAS in your product. Um, so then, you know, you're already ahead of the game, um, whether it be from a regulatory standpoint or from just making yourself environmentally preferable, being a, one of the options for, for federal procurement. Um, and then for that matter, you know, having your product being able to be pitched to, you know, just Joe Citizen in the United States as something that is PFAS free. And so, you know, any manufacturer, you know, if you're looking within the procurement context, and that knowledge is going to be essential, at, at least for this administration moving forward. And, you know, I, I would think just from the point of public perception and you know, having that knowledge is going to be important going forward also. Great. Thank you so much, Judah. Thanks for spending the time today. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Judah. He's given us a fair amount of information to process. There's probably a joke in there about drinking from a PFAS compliant fire hose. 
So this is an evolving story, and the regulation of PFAS is still developing, and U.S. federal procurement is only one piece of that. There's a clear policy preference to avoid PFAS, but for now, there are few, if any, bright-line rules at the contract level. We'll continue to track developments. Companies should, of course, review solicitations and their contracts and understand any clauses that impose requirements or restrictions related to PFAS. Those could take the form of explicit restrictions through rogue clauses, or they could be imposed through more broadly applicable clauses associated with FAR Part 23. Judah explained EPA's program for identifying environmentally preferable products and how that program is accounting for PFAS. FAR 23703B1 already directs agencies in their acquisition planning to open, quote, maximize the utilization of environmentally preferable products and services based on EPA-issued guidance, end quote. With limited exceptions like Energy Star and EPEAT, that's not translated directly into firm contractual requirements. There's otherwise no FAR clause, for instance, that requires an offeror to certify that it'll deliver products that fall under one of the EPA-blessed programs. In the short term, companies may see non-standard clauses mandating delivery of products that meet the EPA guidance, comparable to what we have seen from the General Services Administration with the incorporation of firm sustainability criteria in contracts for enterprise infrastructure solutions. The FAR Council has opened a FAR case, that's case number 2022-006, to implement aspects of the key executive order that Judah mentioned, which is Executive Order 14057, Catalyzing Clean Energy Industries and Jobs Through Federal Sustainability, and the associated OMB memo. That's expected to be a broad rulemaking that revamps FAR Part 23, among other things. It's expected to specifically address PFAS. It remains to be seen if there will be a separate clause dedicated to PFAS, or more likely whether PFAS will be incorporated into a broader framework. We'll plan to cover that rulemaking, which we expect will develop in parallel with those implementing Executive Order 1430, climate-related financial risks that I mentioned earlier. Those are cases 2021-016 and 2021-015 for anyone keeping track. Lastly, while we focus on the macro picture, understandably, it's worth thinking about some of the targeted ways that PFAS restrictions are already affecting contractors. For instance, if a contractor is contracting with DOD to support testing and training operations, it needs to be cognizant of limitations on the use of aqueous foam containing PFAS. While use may be allowed for now in responding to true emergencies, it's generally not going to be acceptable where it's avoidable, like in plant testing and training in a controlled environment. Another example is that contracts for services on DOD installations may include restrictions on incinerating materials containing PFAS. The other side of the story is that the crackdown on PFAS is creating and will continue to create opportunities for some contractors. There's cleanup and remediation contracts to help DOD address past use of PFAS. The infrastructure bill earmarks funding for grants to research solutions to combat problems associated with PFAS, including the development of alternatives. More generally, companies that can meet mission requirements without reliance on PFAS are going to be at a competitive advantage in the near term and likely even more so in the longer term. Well, that's a wrap for this episode, and that was a particularly dense one. If you're interested in learning more about any of these subjects, please check out our show notes, where you'll find links to background materials and articles and other information covering these areas in even greater detail. Thanks to Judah Prero for educating us on PFAS and the federal response, and to Bill for his substantive contributions, including the headlines and his editing prowess. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of Bonafide Needs. We hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts and look for new episodes soon. Until then.
Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the Pub K Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Mike McGill and Bill Olfer. Our book and music is Ambient Piano and Strings by Zachar Falaha.